Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, guys. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajaiski, and this episode I talked to award-winning Canadian artist and designer Omar Arbel about two materials used in his work, copper and glass. This conversation was part of a commission from a Canadian design magazine called Disenio. They asked me to interview Omer for the magazine and agreed that I could put the audio out on this podcast. So back in December, we dialed in on Zoom, Omer from Vancouver and me from rainy London for this conversation. I'm going to pause the music at this point to give you a little bit of an introduction um, to the conversation because my chat with Omer started with him giving me a short PowerPoint presentation about the pieces in glass and copper that we were going to be talking about. So Omer numbers his work sequentially, and you'll hear this throughout the conversation, he'll refer to 93s and 113s. Um, And those are the titles of those different pieces of work. Um, His experimentations with copper started with sand casting, and with glass started with manipulating hot glass sort of vessels using things like airflow and vacuums and heat. In the next versions of the works, he combined the two materials together um, using vacuums to suck softened glass through rigid copper meshes to create a sort of composite piece. Um, And in another one, melted copper and poured it into a glass vessel to create a beautiful sort of layered effect. This project relied on the fact that the type of copper and glass used had a very similar coefficient of thermal expansion so that as the composite piece cooled, the materials would shrink at about the same amount and so could maintain their sort of strong molecular bond between the two materials. Um, In the final work that Omer showed me, he chose different compositions of copper and glass where the coefficients of thermal expansion were deliberately mismatched. So in this work, the copper was melted and poured into the glass, but as the pair of materials cooled, the glass or like the copper would shrink much more than the glass would. And so the glass would eventually shatter to leave just this sort of weird ghostly copper, like negative imprint, which was formed on the inside of the glass vessel that was now smashed off. 
So that's where you're joining this conversation after Omer had taken me through this series of experimentations with the materials of copper and glass. And in our conversation, I started by asking him about the working relationship that he has as a designer with the craftspeople like the metal workers and the glass blowers who wrangle the materials in his workshop. Well, okay, because if, if my role is, if I'm the composer and I, I create a score and then the glass blowers and the metal casters are the musicians and they, you can, can you even, it's, 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 it's such a beautiful collaboration because they bring so much of themselves into the work. Imagine how a different musician might perform the same work with a completely different emotional um, backdrop um, to the same notes. Yeah, but as well as that, you've got, you know, the the physical materials. I guess that's like the instruments in your analogy, right? The way that the instruments are conducted, the way that those materials will flow, as you say, often in a completely unique and um, it's not quite random because it's guided by the shape and the temperature and stuff, but it's it's not 100% controllable where that copper will flow or, um, you know, how the glass will be led by the vacuum. Um, And so another theme that I picked up was the sort of timescales in your process. Because I think for me, thinking of the material copper and the material of glass, when they're hot, they have very different timescales. You know, when you're casting copper, it's all quite urgent. You need to get it out of the furnace and get it in your sand cast mould or or get it into that glass form really quickly before it cools down. Whereas when you work with melted or heated glass, it's much more sort of slow and sensual and it can be quite dramatic if it heats too much and then it starts flopping everywhere, but it's much more of a kind of slow rate of movement. Um, I wonder how do you manage to control both of those things when you work with the materials together? Yeah, I, it, that's an insight for me. I hadn't actually even considered it, but you're you're uh, you're right. There is a different, uh, uh, completely different sort of order of magnitude of urgency. Yep. Uh, and uh, and how have we done that? Have I mean, I guess the only pieces that um, require a calibration or a moment of meeting is our 93 and 113, the recent ones. Mm. Um, the act of pouring is this like sort of um, punctuated moment in yeah. an otherwise drawn out process. Um, and that's, uh, that's really, that's quite, quite a beautiful way of thinking about it. It's, it's true. But, ha- but I guess the, that would go back to my, uh, early response about the performative aspect of the work. I wish you could see the studio. There's a kind of, it's exactly as you describe it. There's a kind of um, slow building up as the glass work is being made Mm. patiently with sensitivity. And then when the moment's right, everything happens all at once. The copper gets poured, the glass shatters. Like it's like quite dramatic. (laughs) dramatic. (laughs) And uh, we, we, we just, we just love it. Um, yeah, I think I don't know. There's if if I establish a criteria where I say, okay, that what's important. There are no mistakes. Every single thing we make is interesting as long as it follows these particular loose guidelines, right? That I establish. Then the the moment. So that's a very kind of like um, uh, abstract idea. Uh, and then the moment where an abstraction becomes a very particular object, that's, that's, um, 
that's what I meant when I tried when I use the word sacred. It's it seems like it seems very important to me. Where in concept, the the piece could be any number of forms, uh, an infinite number of possibilities it, it is present in the glass shop every time one of these things begins its process of making, and then it transforms into a highly specific and particular object that can never be ever repeated. Um, which is actually true about everything in our world. That, when you actually think about it, even the things that appear identical are not. Um, we just can't perceive the differences. Yeah, so true. I mean, that's that's a very sort of classic theory of quantum mechanics, right? The Schrodinger's cat theory. Yeah, exactly. Where course, there's an yeah. infinite number of possibilities, yeah. but then you open the box or you cast yeah. the copper or you blow yeah. the glass blowing <laughs> or whatever it is, and then it crystallizes into its final form. Um, so, yeah, kind of a funny, I guess, mirroring of the art and the science there. <laughs> I speak about Schrodinger's box a lot. Uh, I just like I just uh, described it to my daughter the other day. Oh, nice. The other day. Um, I had to invent something because she didn't. She didn't like the idea of a dead cat. Yeah, fair so enough. Invent- <laughs> <laughs> so, but I do believe. I mean, but yeah, it it is kind of, you know, it is a, a mystifying concept in a very basic way. Um, but that should be. I think we can celebrate it as humans. We can we can be present for the moment for that moment of 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 where the where the the collapse of the of the wavefront, we can be present, and and we know also from quantum mechanics that the, ob- the act of observation affects that moment of crystallization into a real, into a specific object. So all that is like quite quite alluring from a poetic perspective. Yeah, to me. totally, and and it makes a lot of sense. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but the theories do kind of the maths falls out of the scientific sense of all of those kind of concepts as well, I guess. Um, it's interesting what you were saying about everything, or even if there's an accident in your workshop, it's treated as um, something interesting to be sort of looked at and thought about. Because um, that's that's exactly what scientists do in their lab as well. You know, there is no there is no null result because if there's an accident or something goes differently, then maybe that could be a new avenue of research. Um, we saw it actually with the with the coronavirus vaccine trial in the UK, they accidentally gave one cohort of the patients the wrong dosage, but it turned out that that was the best, uh, best combination. So it's, it's always worth kind of going down those avenues. But I think as scientists, we are often so reluctant to publish a negative result or an accident, or um, we don't like to say, Oh, I didn't mean for it to go like that. Um, But it sounds like you don't quite think the same way. Yeah, we fundamentally regard, uh, I've said in, in past interviews, failure is a constant companion or, or mm. is my constant companion or something like that. But I even want to change that now because I don't, I don't think it's, fa- it's, it's not failure, really. Mm. It's, it's um, even the word failure is the wrong word. It's, I, we never, there are no edits in a sense of any of our work. We don't edit out anything, even ideas that never come to light remain in the studio on the shelf until they do come to light. And sometimes it takes years, sometimes six months, other times it takes years for them to mature. And it's, it's always this, and, and that's why we have them around all the time to, to sort of be able to see them as we're walking through or doing something else. And you never know when it's going to kind of click to click like a, a new piece of equipment or a new person with a different skill set that comes into your orbit or, a different context, something changes, and these past sort of 
quote unquote failures breathe a new sort of life. So it's not only true that within each project, we accept every single iteration of the procedure as valid. It's also within the entire practice as a whole, every single idea is complete. There are no bad, bad ideas in a way. Like it's yeah. just, that it's just they're not ready yet or they're not mature yet. Sure. Um, or they haven't been we, combined with the right other idea right, yet. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Or, or the right person or the right combination of relationship or the right, uh, um, leap in terms of, of, uh, material knowledge or mm. so that that's kind of, that's another reason why I feel more and more comfortable with the numbering system that I established quite a long time ago. Um, because it gives a kind of equivalence to every idea. Not, not a single one of them is better than the other. Certain ones are just more mature and also implies that none of them ever end. Yeah. Like you just keep going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which it sounds like you intend to <laughs> just keep going down all these different avenues. See where it leads. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about this specific combination of materials then, because as, as I said earlier, for me, thinking of copper and glass, they're very different personalities in material science. <laughs> you know, one of them is a metal. It goes through a crystallization process. So, you know, at one temperature, it is a liquid and then you lower it by one degree Celsius and suddenly it's a solid. Whereas glass is this like weird, is it a liquid? Is it a solid? It goes through this weird sort of morphing transition over hundreds of degrees before yeah. it goes from a solidy type thing to a more liquidy type thing. So, you know, even those processes of, of heating and cooling, uh, they manifest so differently in these two materials. So I'm interested in, what am I interested in here? I suppose it's about the the different behaviours of those materials sort of with temperature and how do you manage to wrangle them sort of together? Yeah, yeah. Um, a, 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 a huge amount of, of the craft of glass blowing is exactly that, um, um, is, is just in, in a, on an intuitive level, understanding the amount of heat in the glass, knowing exactly when to reheat it, also having a perception of how much heat are in, is in different parts of the glass object. Always, for example, the, the, the part that attaches to the punty, which is the metal rod or, or blowpipe that you use to insert air in because the metal absorbs more heat that part's always hotter than the extreme end of it or the thicker parts of the glass are, are absorb more right. heat than the thicker. Yeah. and so there's the kind of balancing act that every glass blower performs as a matter of course within their work day that 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 defies um i don't know it's almost like a completely intuitive act it's mm. the way that uh that 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 uh, uh, ballet dancers perform without actually knowing what their body's doing or whatever. It's like, that's so, so on, on that level, I rely entirely on the intuition of the glass blowers for the, for the work with glass for copper. As you say, it has a kind of brute force uh, kind of <laughs> aspect to it. Like, in one minute it goes solid or whatever. It's a, it's true. And, and so there we just like, we heat it, we hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it spills everywhere like like water and then immediately solidifies right. that's the other thing difference between them the copper flows freely literally literally like water mm. uh, when it's hot and the glass is kind of like um, syrupy honey like a consistency consistency of honey a kind of um kind of as you say slower mm. um 
more rumbling or like a kind of meandering quality to it, let's say, whereas the carper is very direct. Um, it's, it's, it's very easy to sort of start um, romanticizing the relationship in your mind, uh, but, but it's probably not very fruitful. I don't know. I, I think that the interesting thing that's happened in my, in, in our glass shop is that my experience is that the, the glass blowers who I work with, who I collaborate with have started to incorporate that intuitive quality, the quality that they've learned over years with, um, working with glass to copper they, they've started to intuitively start to they start to have that intuition about copper when is it and how will it affect the glass you you, you alluded to that moment where there's too much heat in the glass and starts to flop over yeah that that happens sometimes exactly at the moment where it comes into contact with copper because there's so much heat that's ex- ex- exerts from the copper into the glass and immediately it liquid kind of liquefies wow so that's the that's the um for these particular pieces, that's the moment where we have to watch out. But that's actually a direction I'd like to explore. I'd like to induce that that transformation, see what happens for future work. Nice. Yeah. Could you get the copper to almost sort of burn through the glass or kind of melt it completely away? Yeah. And what kind of form might that result in? Yeah. Yeah. Copper that sounds really interesting. Interestingly, interesting when copper comes, when it's that hot and it comes into contact with liquid, like with water or something like that there's almost an explosion that occurs um, because the water immediately evapor- evaporates and it pushes, it pushes outwards from the, if it's, um, uh, I, if it's in the center of the, of the copper. And so I, I dream, I don't know, I haven't been able to do it, but I dream about um, trying to somehow freeze that explosion um, mm-hmm. as it's happening. So, so have an actual, uh, uh, a particular specific stable object that that captures the the moment of explosion. I don't know. That, so one idea is, so I, I learned, this is a kind of a, a funny story. I, I learned about this from, we were doing some research in a foundry using cast iron, not copper. And, um, and the, the foundry, it, the foundry we were working with makes very large objects, very large uh, parts for giant machines for logging or for shipping, very huge pieces of, of cast iron. Um, and, it, and they were showing us this one particular sand mold that they were making, which was um, probably like a, a meter and a half, a cube, a meter and a half approximately in every direction. Quite an enormous casting. And, yeah. and, uh, and cast iron is also uh, melted at a much higher temperature than copper. So it's quite dangerous. And they wear these sort of moon suits, mirrored <laughs> moon suits. And the, it's awesome. And, and, then they, and they, so they showed me this particular failed casting in their, in their world, failed casting where um, a mouse was was stuck inside the the sand mold oh my and God. then right as they were flooding it of course the mouse just completely got evaporated but the explosion that occurred luckily they were safe because the sand there was like a good um, 200 millimeters of sand cover all the way around so the sand prevented the explosion from harming anyone but the form of that explosion was captured in the sand in this sort of fascinating way. Wow. Um, we haven't been able to replicate it. But I, but I imagine I, I would like the glass to take the place of the sand uh, in, that, in, that, um, in that sort of set of parameters. I don't know. That's, That's kind of- so cool. I guess you'd need to choose, probably not water, you'd need to choose a different liquid that was going to sort of evaporate but then freeze really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. 
An interesting materials question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so we've spoken about having matching coefficients of thermal expansion and lots of sort of matching temperature um, sort of properties of these two married up materials. Are you interested in ad- exploring any other types of material material property matching or or mismatching? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, uh, I've been trying to explore how glass will fuse with objects that have a different coefficient of expansion as well. It's just a question of how, how those, how stable those fusions remain as the piece cools. And if the surface area isn't great, it's possible that they actually remain kind of stable. So that's exciting too, because there's, um, um, a, a tremendous variety of iridescent colors that's possible with with different metals and different kind of in, inclusions, let's say. And so we have there's one trajectory in the practice where we where we make what I call soup, and it's uh, so we have like the obvious one that we tried is a copper glass soup, and it's like 45 percent copper, 65 percent glass. And we just like mix them and see what happens. Oh, Fascinating. Wow. There's a kind of like blue green kind of quality to it as it fuses. But I'd like, but I'd like to go further and try to make um, objects that have, and then so then I start throwing like different kinds of metal in the in the copper. So basically making alloys, mm. um, which so you rely on the copper to sort of marry with the glass, but you also get this sort of weird inclusions that make beautiful colors or strange sort of um, form. That's interesting. I'm 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 fascinated with electricity um, we're working a bit with electricity as a um as a way of fusing glass and metal because okay. um the heat generated from electricity first of all because the the form of it is so beautiful it follows the electrical current nice but also because then that surface area the um of contact is so is so tiny that i have a hope that they might remain stable uh, when cool, these are just kind of ambient experiments that are happening. None of them are conclusive yet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Nice. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, some fascinating avenues of research. Um, one of the things I was wondering about is the the what is called the brittle to ductile transition in science. It's basically like what we were saying about glass. You know, it starts as a brittle solid and then as you heat it, it becomes a viscous liquid. Um, yeah. Solid copper doesn't have that. There are some metals that do. Um, steel is a good example of a metal that is sort of quite ductile at room temperature. But if you cool it down um, to freezing temperatures, then it's water freezing temperatures, then it, then it goes brittle. And, um, you know, I've read articles about how that could have been one of the reasons that the Titanic sank because the steel was mm. too cold. And so it literally smashed like glass when it hit the, um, hit the iceberg. But copper doesn't suffer from this. So I'm, mm. I'm, I'm interested in how, how the, the sort of stability of copper's ductility can remain with temperature, whereas the glasses is a lot more sort of shape shifting in a way. So that I guess that would uh, allowing that th- thought process takes us to the process of annealing, I suppose, because right. copper d- wouldn't need to be annealed, whereas glass absolutely does. Mm. So well, the process of an- yeah, you, you can still cold work copper a bit, I think. Um, you know, if you were to work a copper bar back and forth, back and forth, it would start to get a bit more um, sort of hard and brittle as a result of that. And so if you annealed it, then it would soften again. But um, but yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be as catastrophic as glass needing annealing. Well, we have, that's why we have copper. That's why we use copper. One of the reasons it's conductive too, but for wires and things like that, is you can keep bending them a lot. Right. It resists, it resists the sort of brittle thing. Interesting. So yeah, so so annealing is like, Another super fruitful avenue. So mm. what? So the process of annealing is uh, is to take glass and, and cool it down very slowly. And and what we do, what what happens on a molecular level is all these sort of tensions that are built up in the glass are released over time instead of all at once, so the piece doesn't shatter. Um, and uh, and and that's how we overcome that um, brittle that brittle that inherent brittleness of 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 glass after it's heated copper doesn't need that but i guess when i look at those two works 93 and 113 i guess that is actually what we're relying on so that that the discrepancy between the between those two materials and the way that they are that they behave is is what we're relying on in, in the case of 113 it's so easy because we let them do it we each let them yeah. we let one do their thing like so copper does that and um, and glass that shatters off, perfect. But in ninety for ninety three, there's a process of annealing that takes days um, because we're trying to sort of soften that, or I guess um, um, bring those those two uh, the, the cooling down process of glass and the cooling down process of copper. It can never be the same, but we bring them to within. A sort of sweet spot where they can um, occur together, and and there the malleability of the copper is our is our best friend. Um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of materials or, or processes, really? No, I, I thought this was kind of a concise. Uh, we have worked with lots of other materials too, but I thought the the iterative aspect of this trajectory mm. was interesting. Um, it, it it doesn't really happen with other materials like many of our other experiments, I guess with the exception of possibly concrete, where we are learning from one project to the next and applying things that we've learned. Um, yeah, and I still feel the other reason I wanted to talk about copper and glasses because I feel like there's a long way to go 
it's so fruitful. Mm. Um, and we can keep going with copper and glass. There's a there's a sort of self-imposed um, limit that we uh, that we apply. Like at the studio, it's it's we really try to work with only one material usually in normal circumstances. Um, there's a sort of purity that comes from um, a commitment to one one material and its um, material properties. But in this case, uh, this is a sort of exception because we, on a fundamental level, have decided to work with two different materials, and so. There, it's uh, exponentially more complicated, um, but I think also there's such a strange, there's so many strange results that could come out of it that make it sort of worth it. Yeah, for sure. So, so you've mentioned your experiments with sort of the 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 electrical experiments and looking at the effects of electricity in this system. Um, what else is on your shelf at the moment yeah, to be looked I mean, at? I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I will. Um, there's a, so that the electrical ex- experiments are actually related to. So, um, okay. So for the first 15 years of our practice, my trajectory has been to invent process. I invent a process. Process iterates, and every iteration is unique. The process occurs at many scales: at the scale of an object, at the scale of a piece of sculpture or an installation, at the scale of a component of a building, or even an entire building. And um, and that's been very satisfying, and and, and it's been su- successful in, in the way I, that I I regard success um, because it's yielded unique unique forms. Um, but uh, but there is a kind of um, laboratory aspect to that trajectory, which I which I find li- limits the poetic potential of the work. Um, in other words, we you you even identified it earlier on in this in this interview when you said there. Ra- random, and then you took it back and said, "Not really random. Are they random? Are they not random?" Right. And that's the, that I struggle with that problem because um, because there is actually a tremendous amount of control that we're exerting on these on these pieces, and but there's a balance. Like we step, we take we take step forward, maybe two steps forward, one step back, and let the piece sort of make its own mm. form. I don't know. So so one way that I've thought about. Um, I guess maybe imbuing meaning in these works beyond that uh, Schrodinger's cat illusion that you pointed to, or the perform, let's call it the performative or sacred moment of the universal turning into the particular, um, which is to apply this way of thinking to natural phenomena. So, you know, especially in the context of, uh, you know, collapsing ecosystems, climate change, and these kinds of things, when you consider the world that we're in, um, I, I've started um, ser- searching for ways that this method, this way of thinking could engage with natural phenomena. And the one that I'm focusing on now is lightning. So lightning is like, um, we are so far away from realizing this project, but um, we have, we've taken first steps. And uh, it's, uh, it's, the idea is to to pass an electrical current through um, a canister of of what of like of glass, basically glass dust with all these metal inclusions that we've learned about over the years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the source of that electrical current comes from, ideally, um, a bolt of lightning. Cool. 
So, I mean, that's that's really quite quite far fetched um, from a safety perspective. But I have um, I have contacted. Um, there's a there's two or three university departments over the in, in in different parts of the world. One of them is in the University of Florida. And this one, unfortunately, we learned uh, we want to collect. We wanted to collaborate collaborate with them, but they um, uh, but they are not active anymore, or their lightning capture um, program is not active anymore. But they had for a while. Uh, they had this amazing machine that they built, where they actually capture lightning. Wow! Like actually induce the the the. The that <laughs> they have these sort of towers, and they fire javelins made of copper into the air with a chain, and, and lightning strikes the javelin in the thunderstorm, leads the, the uh, and then brings it down, and they make their own fulgurites. Fulgurites are fulgurites are are uh, are these sort of this they occur in nature. There is when lightning strikes sand, silica, and makes these sort of forms that that correspond to the path of the electrical current. Which is where the heat is and fuses. So what I want to do is is collaborate n- not with these guys because they're not active anymore, but mm-hmm. uh, a similar uh, lightning research facility to basically channel the lightning into a, a canister, very heavily insulated canister of of uh, of, um, of 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 material of our own, it's our own recipe, sort of. So silica sand and some of these metal inclusions. Um, and so, and so, uh, and what we've done um, in the meanwhile is is tried to replicate the process in our own studio. We have very, very tiny ones that we've made that are approximately seven centimeters. So this is just the same glass that we have kicking around, kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. not there's no there are no inclusions in it, but it's been a successful experiment on a small scale. Um, of course, again, it's in the laboratory. It's in our it's in our shop, so it's not that interesting. And it's from a poetic perspective, it's beautiful, but it's not. What I would like from this project is that these objects have a correspondence to an actual natural phenomena. So, a lightning bolt that you see flashing in the sky, there, there would be a physical embodiment of that particular lightning bolt, the particular amount of energy in that lightning bolt, and its path travel through a, a sand matrix. It's like. Um, poetic in a different way than the objects I've shown to you today, because it corresponds to something that actually occurred in in quote unquote nature, um, and that I find sort of like really uh, poetic in a new way. That's maybe the 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 resources required to do that are, are much greater, and it's um, in this particular case dangerous. And there's uh, you know, we're, we're outside of our own little playground. So there's a lot of other factors to deal with, mm. but I think that that's the, that's a direction I'd like to pursue. Um, because I believe that the meaning of those objects could be, uh, could, could be a lot more layered and nuanced and, uh, uh maybe emotional if they actually record, if they actually use natural phenomena as impetus, um, yeah, there's something very, not exactly satisfying, but I mean, there's something very kind of current about harnessing energy from nature, isn't it? Like, that's what we're all trying to do in the 21st century is how can we harness energy from nature to to make our own lives less impactful? Um, yeah. And kind of thunder and lightning is one of the, it's one of the most kind of powerful and energetic 
events of nature, I think, that we can imagine. Um, so to kind of embody that in an object, um, I think people would find that, yeah, super emotive. Um, and to be able to tie that to a particular storm in a particular place. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Tells a really interesting story, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I, I'm looking, I'm researching uh, the classification of lightning bolts. And, you know, there's all kinds right. of very beautiful ways that people describe them or, or classify them. It's uh, Yeah. And so if you've done lightning bolt research, can I ask you a question about lightning bolts quickly? <laughs> Do you know? I might not be able to. But yeah. So, so there's there's the sort of the classic shape of a lightning bolt is a kind of jagged uh line, I suppose, from top to bottom, if it's a if it's coming from a cloud and it's going towards the earth. Um and that that's sort of like a, a kind of fractal pattern of of a kind of electric breakdown, isn't it? Like that's what's happening is the electricity yeah. doesn't have anywhere to go, so it tries to get to the earth. Are you predicting that the shapes that you make will mimic that kind of shape or is it too early to say? Well, I mean, that, that little sample that I showed you, it, it, it promises that they would. Yeah. I don't know how jagged, I mean, I, um, the mediums, the, the, those lightning bolts are going through air, whereas ours would be going through the silica and metal right. magic. So, so it might affect, so... I don't know for for sure. I mean, this is all I this is all I have right now. Mm. But uh, I mean, they're, they're quite delicate. They're really, really quite delicate, and they do suggest an electrical, a fractal electrical sort of um, form. But it is it's not it's not that jagged form you associate with a lightning bolt, is it? No, it looks uh, like coral or moss or something like that. It looks yeah. pretty biological. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I, time will tell, I guess. I really know. cool. I can't wait to see the results. <laughs> it's take some time. We need years. years. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, brilliant. Is there anything else you, you want to mention? No, not really. Okay, awesome. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's been so interesting to chat to you, I guess. Um, it's always fascinating for me because I don't speak the language of a designer. I mean, you've heard... <laughs> I, I speak the language of, of material science and that's the way I think about stuff. But to hear the 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 language and, and the processes, the way that you think about these processes is so different for me. Um, and it's always so interesting to learn from you um, and from people like you that speak your language about the same stuff that we both know about, but from these so kind of different, um, different yeah. places. I have to say that's the same. Uh, I, uh, I also really enjoyed this conversation for that reason. And, uh, and I think that that's, um, uh, that scientists and artists need to collaborate more. I think, I don't know. I think that, I think that it's, um, the, uh, there were other eras in, in, in history where the role of a scientist and the role of the artist weren't so different from each other. And I think that's probably, um, that was probably a quite a good thing. Mm, um, I know yeah. no, people can't be, uh, you know, like the era of the so-called Renaissance person or man is, is yeah. over because there's too much knowledge. Like there actually used to be a time where you could conceivably, if you were really smart, know enough about almost everything that was known. Mm. Um, and you could draw connections between the fields. And now, of course, because of specificity and because of the vastness of the body of knowledge that we have as a species, we can't do that anymore. Not really. Um, but there is a sort of concept of science I find attractive, even when you think of people like Newton or sort of early protagonists. They were, they came, 
to science from an alchemical perspective. Like it's it's not known now anymore because the their contribution is so massive and and so um, fundamental to current science. But I mean, these people were like believed in strange sea creatures that were like half this, half that. They were there was like they had like astrological theories about destiny and all these very strange stuff. Um, and I'm not saying that that's good, but I am pointing to an era in history where there was a sort of mysticism or mythology incorporated into scientific thinking um, or a st- maybe even storytelling, let's call it, um, which is easy to dismiss from our perspective now, but um, somehow to me ha- offers a kind of humanist approach that's if it doesn't um, water down the rigor of a of an of an inquiry of a scientific inquiry, could could maybe bridge that uh, that relationship in a in a good way. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it just informs like a different way of talking of thinking about something. Um, I was reading recently about people alchemists that wanted to work with brass back in the day because obviously brass is kind of the same color as gold and so they were yeah. sort of they were wondering like if we heated up brass then would it just become gold so they tried it and the zinc in the brass had a very low boiling point so when they heated up the brass the zinc just boiled away and they were left with copper not gold right. And the way they reconciled this was that the spirit of the brass had disappeared. I just love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And, and you know, were they wrong? I mean, it was zinc atoms. We know that now. But yeah. if that's yeah. how, how it helped them to think about it, then fair enough. <laughs> Is there I anything, um, just I guess one final question. Is there anything in science that you really want to kind of know about? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of everything, the, the, <laughs> everything. <Yeah. laughs> but the problem is we have such a finite lifespan and so little time, you know, like the, I always say this, the, as you age, the, the road narrows as you go, kind of, you know, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the relevance of, of, of future events, um, there's a relationship between the availability of, of future knowledge or future projects to everything that's occurred in the past. So there's, you can't, I always say like, you can't really start anything new. You're always coming from somewhere, going somewhere. Um, so what does that mean? So what does that mean? It's like, yes, uh, uh, I would like to know a lot, but I think that it, um, my decision of where to spend energy or my, uh, in, let's say intuition about where, wh- what to investigate comes from, the contingencies of my life, so the people I meet, the the relation, the people around me, the relationships that I've that I've um, cultivated over years, it has to come from where I'm already going or where I've come from, mm. uh, rather than just be a kind of a fresh blank. Like I can't just be like, okay, I'm going to do a PhD and whatever, yeah. you know, like, like which I really want to, I really want to do like twelve different PhDs, but it's but it's um. It's not the it's not the right way to go. To go. The right way to go is to take step by step from where I'm at. So, um, like I'm interested in, in lightning, find lightning researchers, learn from them. I'm interested in uh, time, learn about time. These kinds of things. Mm. That that's that's and 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 collaboration is a is a huge part of my way forward because I just a lifetime is simply not long enough. Um, to do any particular thing really well, maybe mm. one or two things 
or maybe three if you're total genius but it's like there's you can't you just can't so so in order to work if you're if you're curious and if um you you have you have to collaborate with people who have devoted their lifetime to whatever area of knowledge you might be interested in working on and in my case, it's not necessarily science. It's it's craftspeople. It's 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 my glassblowers. It's architects. It's um, um, yeah. It's, it's, so if I if we're going just stepping back in our conversation, if I see myself as a sort of composer, so my role is to meet as many great musicians as I can, uh, or or compose works for for these great musicians that I that I meet. Yeah, I think I think I've been doing exactly the same as you. Um, I came to realize a few years ago that yeah, f- fine. I know loads about the theories of materials, and I can draw you graphs, and I'll I'll tell you the formulae behind them. But but I had no idea what it was to throw a pot on the potter's wheel or to to blow up a bubble of glass. And so by spending time with these craftspeople, and like you say, gleaning from their life's passion and their life's dedication to the material in this case. Um, that's where you can find, I guess that's where you can have insight, um, in, in lots of these other different areas without having to do the PhD in, (laughs) in all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Well, um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been really fascinating. Me too. Thank you. So that was the awesome Omar Arbel. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to come on the pod. And thanks to Zenio magazine for allowing me to use the audio from their interview on this podcast. If you've enjoyed the episode, you can tell us you have on Twitter. We're at Real Talk. That's R-I-A-L Talk. And you can follow us on Instagram at Handmade Pod. Thanks as always to Dave Shepard for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. That's everything for this time. Next week, there will be an episode on something. I'm not sure what it will be yet, but until then, take very good care. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.